Well, I want to give you a little formula today. J period is greater than J plus. And some of you go, oh, yeah, I know what that means. And some of you probably go, I don't know what that means. And hopefully by the end of the service today, we'll all know what that means. J period is greater than J plus. Now, I want to ask you a related question. This is a classic question I've probably asked like hundreds of people over you know, the last 40 years of my life. And here it is. Um, if you were to die today and you stood before God and God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? What would you say? So I, think, I want you to think, actually think about this today. How would you answer that? Go ahead. Answer it in your mind. If you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? This is called a diagnostic question because it's designed to help us see where we're actually placing our trust for salvation. Most people that I talk to in Northeast Ohio uh, give answers like this. Um, I believe in God. Uh, I go to church. Uh, I'm basically a good person. Uh, the good that I do outweighs the bad that I do. Uh, I've been baptized. And the common theme to these answers is the presence of I, I do this, I do that, and the absence of Jesus. Now, when I point that out to people, I often hear, oh, 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 I believe in Jesus. And what they're really saying is this, I believe in Jesus, I believe I'm saved by Jesus, plus some of the good stuff that I do. That's what they really mean. Now, here's the problem with that. It's not the truth. It is not the good news. It is not the gospel. It is actually bad news for us to believe that we have to do good stuff in order to get into God's heaven. Because just how much good stuff do you have to do? I mean, it's kind of like having a sales quota, but you never know what the sales quota is. You're always aiming at kind of an unclear target. That is not good news. That leads to do more, try harder religion. And that's why a lot of people just don't have much joy in their faith. Uh, it's why a lot of people have just kind of given up on church, given up on religion. Because this just doesn't lead to new life in Christ. Here's the truth. The gospel is not Jesus plus. The gospel is Jesus, period. That's the good news. Now, open your Bibles to Acts 15. And, and, and Acts 15 is exceedingly important. It is vital. It is monumental. It is pivotal in history. And it's pivotal in the advancement of the good news of Jesus Christ around the world. Because what happens in Acts 15 is just as momentous as what happens in Acts chapter 9, which is the conversion of Paul, who is the missionary charged with getting the gospel to the Gentiles, to people like us. What happens in Acts 15 is just as important as what happens in Acts chapter 10, when Peter, who's a Jewish leader, takes the good news of Jesus to a Roman centurion, a Gentile like us, to a guy named Cornelius. And if the church gets it wrong here in Acts 15, following Jesus just may have been a minor offshoot of Judaism. It may soon have been forgotten. Christianity could have been seen as some kind of a short-lived heretical branch of the Jewish faith. And Acts 1.8, which is 
You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, the uttermost parts of the earth. That may have never been fulfilled. See, even if you don't believe in Jesus here today, Acts 15 is actually a defining moment just in history. Because of what happened in Acts 15, because of the decisions that church leaders made that day, Christianity has been able to advance throughout the Western world and beyond. Because the church got it right here in Acts 15, the gospel traveled to the ends of the earth, and we're here today, saved, following Jesus, and on our way to heaven. So Acts 15 is huge because the truth matters. It really does matter. So let's just dive in. We're going to read a few verses, talk about a few verses um, here today. Uh, so let me define the problem before we dig in. With Barnabas and Paul, who are missionaries who had gone out in Acts 13 and 14, recorded there, and they shared the good news of Jesus on an island in the Mediterranean called Cyprus, and then on up into Turkey, and then had come back to Antioch to the church that sent them out to share good news. They had such a blessing from God on that first missionary journey, that first voyage overseas. They saw Gentiles come to faith in Christ. The Jewish number of believers was starting to be outnumbered by the non-Jewish believers in Jesus. So these Jewish followers of Christ are kind of afraid with the influx of so many former pagans that it would weaken moral standards. And they're thinking, hey, these Greeks and Romans who have been worshiping in pagan temples and practicing immoral sex and rituals and sacrificing to idols, they're going to drag down the moral purity of our faith. So they went out on a mission to try to correct the message that Barnabas and Paul had been giving to people. So, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea. They came to Antioch in Syria from Judea, from Jerusalem, and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these men have a solution. We're going to accept the Greeks. We're going to accept the Romans if they commit to Jewish rules and regulations. To be a Christian means you've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the law of Moses. Little baby Jewish boys circumcised on the eighth day of life to show that they were part of God's covenant family. So these Jewish legalists are saying, if you want to be saved by Jesus, you not only need to believe in him, but you also have to be circumcised like a Jew. Verse 2, and after... Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, I, I wouldn't want to debate with Paul in his sharp mind. And I wouldn't want to debate with Barnabas in his encouraging spirit. I mean, they made a pretty formidable debate team. But these Jewish legalists are just as passionate about what they believe as Paul and Barnabas are. Finally, somebody said, hey, we're not going to sell this here in Antioch. Uh, we have to appeal to the leaders of our leading church in Jerusalem. So they go up to Jerusalem. Now, if you're looking at a map, Syria is north of Israel. So I know it's down on a map, but it's actually up in altitude in feet above sea level. Verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So they're saying, hey, we went to the unreached people groups on Cyprus and in Turkey, and people came to faith in Christ, and everybody goes, that's incredible. I want to show you a picture of um, somebody in the Soli people group in Indonesia 
getting baptized. This is a very, very recent picture. And, and, you know, a few of us have been there, and we know this is a big deal. This is one of the first converts, and we ought to rejoice in this. Yes, it's amazing. It is amazing. Because there are 3 million, 99.9% of them are Muslim people, and, and this is one of the first followers of Jesus on that island with Tony, I mean, T and K, our missionaries there. Uh, we're excited about what God is doing. We should rejoice in that. And so this is what's happening here. They're coming back. They're telling churches, hey, all these great stories about these unreached people groups coming to Christ in their day. The churches are rejoicing. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them. And to order them to keep the law of Moses. If you don't keep the rituals and the rules and the regulations of Judaism, then you aren't a true believer. Hey, Barnabas and Paul, hey, come on, guys. We're glad that you're taking Jesus to the Gentile world, but let's guard the purity of our faith. You've got to add to your message. You've got to tell these people they've got to follow the traditions of the Jews. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. Now, this is significant. Here's why. I actually believe that Paul's letter to the Galatians precedes this council in Jerusalem. See, when Peter went from Jerusalem to Antioch, the church that had sent out Barnabas and Paul originally, uh, he sits down and he eats with the Gentiles. Pork chops, <laughs> spare ribs, bring it on, brother. Fourth of July barbecue, I'm all in. That's what's happening. But then these strict Jews from Jerusalem show up in Antioch, and Peter stops hanging out with the Gentiles. And Paul shows up, and Paul calls him on it. Paul saw clearly that Peter's practice created a situation which some believers who keep Jewish rules and rituals are considered more worthy, more holy, and the Gentiles, who didn't keep those rules and rituals, were considered unworthy and unclean. So Paul stood up and he calls Peter out, face to face, man to man. Because he recognizes that Peter's practice is compromising a very important thing. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So now here, Peter gets corrected and he goes, you're right, Paul, I was wrong, I'm, I'm Bring on the pork chops again, you know. When Peter stands up now back in Jerusalem, and everybody knows that he and Paul have already wrestled through this, and Peter has said, you're right, Paul, this is a big deal. Peter says to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us, the Jewish believers, and them, the Gentile believers, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So the question is, are we saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or are we saved by grace plus law, through faith plus works, in Christ, plus doing more and trying harder? See, Peter speaks out boldly here. That we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he reminds everybody, this issue's already been decided. Well, when was it already decided? Acts chapter 10. 
It occurred about 10 years earlier. Peter had a vision that what I'm supposed to do is to eat these unclean animals. And that thought was revolting to him. He says, I've never eaten anything like that before. And he hears this voice, rise up and eat. He resisted, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. What God has cleansed, you should not consider unclean. Now, Peter's like confused. What does this mean, this vision? But right at that time, some visitors came. These are Gentiles from the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, because he also had a vision that he was to send for Peter to come to him and tell him the truth about salvation. So Peter goes and he visits the home of Cornelius. And then God brings to Peter's mind a verse in the Old Testament which says God is no respecter of persons. So he shares the good news about Jesus to this Roman centurion, his whole family. They all believe the Holy Spirit falls on them. They had a visit from the Spirit of God, and they were baptized. Clearly, God is leading Jewish followers of Jesus to spread this good news about Christ to the Gentile world. And if the Spirit of God falls on the Gentile believers, as soon as they believe the gospel without being circumcised, without doing any Jewish religious rules and regulations, then why should we now impose further conditions on them than they had when they first came to faith? Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. So Peter says this, this yoke, this burden that we had to bear as Jewish people, following Jewish rules and rituals and regulations, we know we were not able to bear it. We failed. I mean, we could not keep the Old Testament law perfectly. So why would we ask the Gentiles to keep the laws that we ourselves could not keep? Listen, when Jesus said for us to follow him, he said we're supposed to carry his yoke. And he said his yoke, his burden that he asks us to carry is easy and light because his yoke points us to the gospel of grace. This is what forgives us. This is what sets us free. Therefore, we cannot expect the Gentiles to keep laws that we weren't able to keep ourselves. Now, I want you to read with me verse 11 here. Here's what he says. This is the summary statement. Here we go. Read it out loud with me. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now, the we here, that's the Jewish people. The they here is us. The Jewish people are saying, we believe we're going to be saved by grace just like the Gentiles will be saved by grace. So he stands up and he boldly reminds the Jewish legalists that this issue has already been decided. So in our time of confusion, we go back to the moment of clarity. This has already been decided. Verse 12, And all the assembly felt, fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done among, through them among the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas are giving reports about the great things God has done on that first missionary journey. People are transformed. Miracles are performed. Holy Spirit's at work powerfully. Churches are planted. Jesus is being followed. And so now everybody says, okay, okay, what's next? And everybody looks to James. James is the brother of Jesus. He's the respected leader of the early church in Jerusalem. He was likely considered to be the first among equals there. And when James speaks, everybody listens. Verse 13 after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, he's referring to Simon Peter here, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So now if the, Jewish, if the Jesus plus crowd, the Jewish legalists, if they were expecting support from James, they would be very disappointed. 
Because he's basically just summing up and approving what Peter had said. Then he quotes from Amos chapter 9, verse 11, verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Here's Amos 9, 11. After this, God says, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. The nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the people of God needed to be restored into a genuine walk with God. For what purpose? Why? Verse 17. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Why did God restore the Jewish people during the days of Jesus? So that the Gentiles would also seek after God. This is not just a story or a message or a truth for just a few Jewish people or Gentiles who become Jewish people. This is for everybody. Verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So the fundamental principle of the gospel, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, is safe. But there's a practical problem. <laughs> because at most of the churches that were planted in the Gentile world, there were synagogues, and you have Jewish believers there. So when they gathered together for the Lord's Supper, or some kind of a fellowship supper, then the issue of what should we eat becomes a problem. Because the Jewish people, they don't want to eat pork or any meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. The Gentile believers didn't particularly have a problem with that. So this, there's a fellowship potential problem. So he adds in verse 20, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So we should ask the Gentile believers, respect your Jewish brothers and sisters. Avoid meat which has associations with idolatry. Uh, avoid meat that's from an animal where the blood's not been properly drained, as in Genesis 9.3. And make sure that you're conforming to the Old Testament moral code because that's going to help us with social fellowship connections between Jewish followers of Christ and Gentile followers of Christ. Verse 21, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So now this issue has been settled in Jerusalem where those who were closest to Jesus lived. The leaders of the church there had spoken on behalf of God, but they got to get this uh, message to the church in Antioch up in Syria. So rather than send uh, Barnabas and Paul alone, they send uh, two of their own, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. These are leaders of the Jerusalem church and they also wrote an official letter. So here's the letter, verse 23. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements." 
that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And I love the fact that it says it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Because these leaders of Christ, these leaders for Christ, were conscious. We've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're being led by the Holy Spirit as we make this decision. So when there is controversy and confusion in the life of a church, the acknowledged leaders of the church gather together. They consider the work of God in light of the Word of God. And then through the Spirit of God, they make a doctrinally sound, unifying decision. And the whole church follows the guidance from the leadership. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This is important. This decision brought joy to the Gentile followers of Jesus. It was encouraging to them. You don't have to follow religious rules and regulations and rituals. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And guess what? That ought to bring you joy and encouragement too. Verse, 20, verse 32. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now I want to share with you five quick big ideas. Here's the first one. Every church can expect threats to truth and unity. Every church. Sometimes I hear people say, you know, we got problems in our church. I tell you what our problem is. We're not enough like the early church. Because we got problems and we got issues and we got conflict and we got controversy. We need to be like the early church. That's what's wrong with the church today. That's the reason we have problems. We're just not like the first century church. Come on, let's just go ahead and recognize that controversy, conflict, division, and disagreement were part of the experience of the early church. You want to be like the church of Acts? There's going to be some messes to fix. So when our church or any church experiences something that's difficult, we shouldn't be surprised. This is an opportunity for us to work together to get, gain clarity from God about what we believe and, and how we live. I mean, to say that we would not be having conflict if we were more like the early church is to forget that there's a chapter like this in the Bible. And so, you know, I, I've seen it over the years here. I've been here almost 30 years now. Conflict, difficulty, they hop to another church. Then conflict and difficulty happen in that church. They hop to another church. And then conflict and difficulty happen over there. They hop to another church. Under the false pretense, the false understanding that if there's conflict, that must mean that the Holy Spirit is not alive and working and well. Nothing could be further from the truth. Every church can expect threats to truth and unity. Second big idea. The gospel of grace must be preserved. See, upper room issues are worth fighting for. This gospel of Jesus is worth defending. This is not much ado about nothing. It's a big deal. Because Paul and Barnabas here, and James and Peter here, are recognizing that the glory of Christ is at stake. The spread of the gospel throughout the known world is at stake. And proper interpretation of the Bible is at stake. This truth matters. Eternal destinies matter. Do you remember early in the book of Acts that the followers of Jesus met together in an upper room? That's where the power of the Holy Spirit had come in the upper room. See, some things in a church are 
upper room issues, and some things are frankly lower room issues. This is not that they're totally unimportant, but they can't be primary. Like, what are secondary issues? We'll take, for example, like personality. I mean, if you're connected to this church only because of Pastor Chad, then you're going to be disappointed today. Why? He's not talking today. <laughs> right? <laughs> what, what about place? I mean, God might send some of us away from here on a long-term mission. Just like we had Emily Zion here last week. She's going to China. But if it's all about place, then she's in trouble. God might send some of us here to help plant a church somewhere. God might send some of us here to start another campus of CBC somewhere else in Northeast Ohio. So it can't be about personality. It can't be about place. It can't be about programs. Because programs come and go in the life of a ministry. What works today might not work tomorrow. So personality, place, programs, those are secondary, non-essential issues. Upper room issues have to do with truth and purpose and mission and vision. The upper room, that's where the unity and the power and the joy reside. Like what are the primary issues? Truths about God, His nature and His character. Truths about Jesus, who is both God and man. Truths about the Holy Spirit. Who, who convicts us and then indwells us and empowers us. Truths about the Bible. This is true. It's inerrant. It's infallible. Truths about all of us creating the image of God, yet fallen into sin. Truths about Jesus has come to be our Savior, and we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the stuff that's worth Fighting over. What do you spend your time fighting for? That is frankly a secondary issue. I mean, is it music volume? Clothing styles? Somebody's tattoo or piercing? Or maybe your favorite ministry didn't get as much money in the budget this year as it did last year? Is it music style? Or the color of the carpet? I can't believe they brought brown carpet for that for you. If you guys wouldn't spill the coffee, we wouldn't have to get brown carpet. <laughs> Is it song choice? Is it like Bible version? Is it how passionate a certain leader is or isn't about homeschooling? Is it partisan politics? See, listen, it's the upper room issues that are worth fighting for. And here's one of the biggest. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone. Here's the third big idea here. Godly leaders have the responsibility to cast the deciding vote. Now, I love the fact this is not one man's decision. This is a group decision, team decision. Yet these leaders did not abdicate their leadership responsibility and put the decision out for a popularity vote. The church is not a democracy. See, if it had come to a majority vote in Jerusalem, where most of the followers of Christ had a Jewish background, the purity of the gospel could very well have been compromised. And this is why it's very important for us to elect, select godly leaders here at CBC. Some of you, quite frankly, need to step up to the role of eldership. I mean, yes, it's a heavy responsibility, but it's a needed responsibility because the elders work in sync with the staff to provide overall leadership to our church, and it's especially needed when we face difficult decisions and decisions related to doctrine. Godly leaders have the responsibility to cast the deciding vote. Number four, the gospel changes people from the inside out 
in every people group without violating their cultural heritage. And I love this because the Gentiles don't have to become Jewish to follow Jesus and be saved. The African doesn't have to become westernized to follow Jesus. The urban Clevelander does not have to become a suburbanite to follow Jesus. A Steelers fan does not have to become a Browns fan Maybe we should. I don't know. <laughs> and a Cavs fan does not have to become a Warriors fan <laughs> to follow Jesus. See, the, the, the fact that they had this disagreement and the fact that it landed where it landed means this gospel of grace tells us Jesus is for everybody. Everybody. And I'm so grateful. I've had a chance to go to, I don't know how many countries around the world, and it is fun to be in another culture and to experience all the sights and sounds and tastes of that culture in those churches. They don't have to do things like we do here. The gospel changes people from the inside out in every people group without violating their cultural heritage. Fifth big idea. The gospel is designed to bring joy and encouragement to our hearts. Are you a joyous follower of Jesus? I want to tell you, if you're not a joyous follower of Jesus, it could be because you don't yet get this. You don't have to do something to be saved. You have to trust someone to be saved. You mean God will accept me even if I fail and fall? You mean I don't have to do more and try harder to be a beloved child of God? You mean the shed blood of Christ has covered all of my sin, past, present, and future? You mean I've forgiven and made just in the sight of God simply because of grace? You mean I have a home in heaven that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away? You mean I don't have to keep religious rules and regulations to be saved? You mean I don't have to walk down front and have somebody put something on my tongue to be saved? The gospel is designed to bring us joy and encouragement. And if we don't have joy and encouragement because of the gospel, we're just not thinking enough about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You know, one, one of the carpenters here at CBC is a guy named John Polking. And, and I, I actually consider him to be an artist. Every year during Lent, we display one of the works of art that he and his son Nick gave to CBC. In our foyer, we put this giant cross that he and Nick constructed. John, in particular, wanted to give our church this great gift. So he used his resources, his talent, his creativity, his passion to create this cross. And while he was creating it, he put other jobs on hold. He hunted for the best wood that he could get for the project, took special care to make it as accurate as possible. So... The nails, the stain, the platform for the feet, all were painstakingly fashioned. He sacrificed for all of us. And finally, the sewing and the staining, the fitting and the woodworking was all done. And then John came to the church with the cross. We welcomed him. They put it up in the foyer and we looked at his priceless work of art. Now, what was our response as a staff? What if I told you that our staff saw the cross, its precious and pure gift, 
And then we ran out to the garage over here and we grabbed nails and saws and sandpaper and drills and boards and glue and nails. What if we decided, hey, let's just cut off a little bit of wood here and let's just add a little bit of wood over there. If that had been the case, I think John should have stopped us and said, wait, what I did, it's, it's, it's finished. See, the proper response to a work of art is not to add to it. The proper response to a work of art is wonder and awe. I mean, try adding to or taking away from a work of art by Mozart or Rembrandt or Da Vinci. It's just like unthinkable. And it's like this with the work of Christ, except multiplied by infinity. God paid a priceless amount in giving Jesus on the cross for us. And Jesus there cried out, It is finished. It's finished. You can add not one little thing to his work. We just receive it, undeserving as we are. For us to change anything about the work of God is really to refuse it. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, time out. Works go somewhere in there. How do works fit in? And yes, we do good works, but our good works don't add to the work of Christ. Our good works are like applause for the artist. That's what our good works are. Our proper response to the work of Christ is worship and praise and wonder and awe. That cross is placed out there in the foyer for everyone to see. And I'm not tempted to add to it. Instead, every year I think about the love and the skill of the man who made it. And I think about the Savior who died on that cross 2,000 years ago. And we dare not try to add anything to his work. If you try to add something to the work of Jesus, you're really subtracting from him. It's like a slap in the face of Christ. I don't really think that what you're doing here, Jesus, is enough to save me. So, I better get baptized. I better join the church. I better be good. Listen, the people that work the most for Christ are the ones who understand the grace of Christ. We are saved by grace alone through Faith alone in Christ alone. Why does this matter? Well, either we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone or we're not. Either Jesus saves or he doesn't. Either it's finished or it isn't. Either you have to keep the rules, rituals, and regulations of religion or you don't. Heaven and hell hangs on the balance of this. In fact, Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, if anybody comes to you and they preach another gospel, if they preach Jesus plus join this church, Jesus plus do this sacrament, Jesus plus perform this ritual, he says, Galatians 1, read it, let him be accursed. And he says, oh, oh, by the way, if you didn't get that, let me just say it again. If anyone preaches another gospel... Other than the one that I preach to you, let him be accursed. See, the glory of Christ rises and falls on this. Our level of joy and hope and assurance comes or goes based on this. That's why I say truth matters, especially the truth about accessing the grace of God in Jesus Christ. If i got to be saved... On the basis of my works, on the basis of my goodness, on the basis of my religious ethic, on my rule keeping. You know what? I'm in trouble. 
You can ask my wife about that. Dude, I would be in trouble. And so would you be. I often say, I won't trust in my best 15 minutes to get me to heaven. I'm trusting Christ and Christ alone. And I hope you are too. The gospel is not Jesus plus. The gospel is Jesus, period. So when somebody asks you that question, hey, if you were to die today and you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? There's really only one correct answer. <laughs> it's Jesus. And yeah, you can put a period by it. <laughs> That's why Paul writes in Galatians, I do not nullify the grace of God. See, there's a way you can nullify it. There's a way you can do away with grace. What is it? It's by adding some religious performance to it. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Christ died for no purpose. Well, we, knew, we know Christ died for something. He died for you. He died for me. So who could tell me what J period is greater than J plus means? J stands for? Jesus, Jesus period is greater than Jesus plus anything you want to add. Because really, when you say Jesus plus, it's really a Jesus minus. And you don't want to do that, do you? What's your response today? Maybe your response today is, I need to transfer my trust from Christ plus works or religion or rules or rituals to Christ alone. You know, I got up here two chairs. This is a chair we used to use on stage. But frankly, it's a little high. It's a little wobbly. And I can remember, I think it was me, sitting up here one time, and I put my foot on this, and it broke. And so we don't really use these chairs too much anymore because they're a little shaky. <laughs> I feel a little nervous sitting on it. <laughs> Let's let this chair represent Jesus plus. This is, this is what I have to do in order to be saved. Religion, rituals, rules, regulations, sacraments being good, getting baptized. Let's let this chair represent trusting in Christ. I feel good. <laughs> hey, listen, some of you, you're here. You're, you're, you're thinking, oh, i got to do this, i got to do that to be saved. What you need to do is to transfer your trust from self to Christ. And, and, and if I get up and leave this chair and I go sit in this chair, I will know that it happened. A lot of you, you can't talk about a time when you transferred your trust. And I would say if you can't define when you transferred your trust, I'm not saying you have to know the date or the hour, but there, there's a season, and maybe you do know the date and the hour, then maybe you've never really transferred your trust. And, and so today is your day to get out of this chair and to sit down in this one. You say, well, how do I do that? You can express it through a prayer. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. No religious deed I can do will save me. I believe we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not by keeping rules and rituals and regulations of religion. I believe you died on the cross in my place to pay for my sins so I could be forgiven. You rose from the grave. Save me, change me. I want to follow you as my Lord from this day forward. I mean, there's no magic prayer. You've heard me say that before. But... Maybe you need to pray that today and go from here to here. From trusting religion, self, 
to Christ. I don't want, I don't want you to have the presence of the eye and the absence of Jesus. I want you to have the absence of the eye and the presence of Jesus. And if you prayed that prayer today, if you're making that transfer today, I mean, all you, you don't have to pray these words. You can just say, okay, I'm transferring my trust now. That's good enough for the Lord. He'll take you up on it. And he will replace fear and anxiety and uncertainty with joy and peace and assurance. And you can let us know about that. In your program, there's a place you can check, and you can turn that part of the program in. There's a card in front of you in the seat. You can check that. Or you can text a number. It's there in your program as well. And for some of you, you've got family members and friends that are trusting in Jesus plus to save them. And maybe you just need to say, muster up the strength and courage to take a little walk at your 4th of July celebration. Say, hey, can we talk about something? I just heard an illustration at church about a work of art. And now if we add to the work of art, it really defaces the art. And, and I'm concerned because I think maybe you're wanting to add to the work of Jesus. And I want you just to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. I mean, you could share that story, that illustration. You don't have to talk about the cross and the four. You can talk about your favorite work of art. Maybe it's a piece of music. Maybe it's a painting. Maybe it's a sculptor. sculpture. Lord, I pray for all of us today that you would restore to us the confidence and the assurance and the joy of our salvation as we reflect on the fact that Jesus paid it all. And it's all to him we owe. That sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. Hallelujah. Seal these truths in our heart and give us the joy of the Lord. In Jesus' name.